Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. I want to welcome everyone watching from home as well, our live stream. I know with the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, we have a number of families out and traveling, and hopefully some are watching uh, on live stream. I want to welcome all of you here uh, as well. Hallelujah. So we have ready in the back. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing in our marathon uh, year-long series to the Gospel of Mark, uh, verse by verse. Today is part 30. Uh, you may say, well, I haven't seen or heard all 30 parts. Well, you can get all of our back sessions on the Gospel of Mark on our YouTube channel, that's Chaim Dallas, uh, and also on our website, ecdallas.org. Uh, so it's, and also, I think it's on, on podcast as well. So we've got three ways to... Uh, Listen to the sermons. And so today we're going to look at the, the uh, what's known in, 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 the, in Christendom as the Last Supper. Uh, and particularly uh, Yehuda's uh, Iscariot, Judas's betrayal of Yeshua. So turn with me to Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. We have it on the overhead as well. Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Yeshua's disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Yeshua had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Yeshua arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, the one who's eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It's one of the twelve, he replied. The one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he hadn't been born. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You'll all fall away, Yeshua told them. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into the Galil, into Galilee. When this famous passage of the Last Supper, the last Pesach Seder, Yeshua predicts that he'll be betrayed by one of his disciples. And he predicts uh, the defection and the failure of all of his disciples. So what do we learn from this? I'm going to suggest this passage is particularly addressed to those who think they're Yeshua's friends. To those who believe they're close to him. People who identify themselves as his followers. Even those who consider themselves to be spiritual leaders. And I think we're going to see three things in this passage we'll put on the overhead. About Yeshua's teaching. What he's teaching. He's teaching on number one, the breadth of sin. Number two, the depth of sin. And number three, how to overcome it. So we have the, the breadth of sin, the depth of sin, and how to overcome it. First, the breadth of sin. Yeshua's in the upper room with his disciples. This is his last Pesach Seder, which also has become known as the Last Supper. 
and he's passing around the matzah and the wine. And, and, and then he says, of the unleavened bread, he says this in Mark 14, 22. Take it, this is my body. And of the cup, he says in Mark 14, 24, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. But it's at this very moment that he also tells his disciples about their failures, about their upcoming betrayal, about how they're all going to fall away and abandon him. Why? As he's talking about how he's come to die for the sins of the world, at the very same time, he tells them about their failures. So why this juxtaposition here? One commentator puts it like this on the overhead. In placing the betrayal between the Last Supper and the defection of the disciples, the Gospel of Mark vividly conveys that the sin which necessitates the death of Yeshua is not someone else's sin. Not someone else out there. Not Caligula or, or Nero or the legion, legion of tyrants ever since, but of his own disciples, Peter and John, you and me. Every Passover that the Lord's Supper celebrated The the essential evil, the essential problem of the world is present. This is the biblical doctrine of the universality of sin. On the overhead, Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it powerfully when he said, "The The line dividing of good from evil runs down the center of every human heart. He says the line dividing good and evil is not between nation and nation or peoples and peoples. Or even individual from individual, but goes right down the center of every human heart. Now, at first, you may object. You may say, wait a minute. I'm not Nero. I'm not Caligula. I'm not Hitler. You know, I'm not guilty of doing what they did. When it comes to knowing your own heart, it's not enough to say, well, I haven't done those things. You also need to ask yourself this. What am I capable of doing? You know, if I was under certain threats, uh, certain pressures, uh, certain temptations, certain opportunities, could I produce the great evil on, under certain circumstances that I haven't actually yet experienced? And the Bible says yes. That's absolutely true. We don't know our own hearts, what we're capable of. That's what this passage is trying to get across. When all the disciples fall away, uh, and Yeshua's, uh, as Yeshua's rest and his crucifixion, it's driving home the point of the universality of sin. G.K. Chesterton, famous writer and apologist, author of the beloved uh, Father Brown series, he had this inspired response to this question when years ago, the London Times asked a series of prominent writers to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back, a four-word submission. Dear sirs, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> he was just recognizing the biblical doctrine of the universality of sin. And some of you are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me something I don't know. I am. If we really grasped and really knew this, we'd be much better able to handle two intractable problems, human problems we all face. There are two really difficult problems uh, that we grapple with that if you believe this biblical truth, you'd be able to address much, much better than you do. 
the first problem is we have a lot of trouble forgiving one another. I remember hearing a, a psychologist uh, say that if he could teach even just a, a third of his patients how to forgive, how to let go of their anger, almost all the problems he was treating them for would disappear. People from time to time, uh, they mistreat you. Parents, spouses, children, employers, co-workers, friends, siblings. And if you can't get over your anger, if you continue to be controlled by your anger, you end up living lives of self-pity. Uh, and you'll be distorted by resentment and, and bitterness. You'll be enslaved by unforgiveness. Your whole life will be characterized by, by a critical spirit. So how can you get release? Uh, how can you forgive and let go? Let me tell you why we have trouble forgiving. If someone lies about you, how do you feel about them? You look at them and you say, they're just a liar. <laughs> no excuse for it. They're just a liar. But if you lie, well, well it's complicated. <laughs> excuse me. There. Uh, there are a lot of factors involved here. I don't always, I, uh, uh, I don't always lie, but under, under certain, certain circumstances, well, here's what happened. You see, if someone lies about you, you flatten them. They're just liars. That's all there is to them. So we, we caricature them into this one-dimensional cartoon figure. But if you lie, well, you're complex. You're multidimensional. We, there are all these extenuating circumstances involved. You refuse to put yourself in the same class as you put the other person. You never say, uh, you say, you say, well, I would never do something like that. But you have done something like that. What way you say, it's different. On the overhead, uh, Miroslav Volf, in his book, uh, The Spacious Heart, he says this. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. And I exclude myself from the community of sinners. You exclude yourself from the community of sinners. You don't believe in the universality of sin when it comes to you. Or else you'd be able to forgive. If you grasp what this is saying, you'd realize we are all the same. Uh, I'm not quite as complex you know, when I lie uh, as I'd like to believe I am. And that person is, isn't as one-dimensional uh, as I'd like to think. We're in this community of sinners together. And if you'd grasp this, you could overcome resentment uh, and bitterness and unforgiveness. So one problem many of us have with forgiveness uh, is, is with forgiveness. And a related problem is sustaining whole groups. Groups of people we stereotype uh, and we don't like. Uh, whether by race or ethnicity or ideology or politics. Especially ideology and politics. <laughs> And the problem of the world is them, right? You know, people with their point of view, they're the problem, not me and my group. But if you believe in the doctrine of the universality of sin, you also need to believe in the biblical doctrine of the radical nature of grace. We're not saved because we have better doctrine than somebody else or because our practice is more right than other people, but by the sheer grace of God. Every believer who truly comes to Messiah even though in the process leading up to faith, uh, you were struggling, uh, you were wrestling with the claims of the gospel, you were working hard. But after faith comes to you, you inevitably, you look back and you say, the only reason I believe is because God persistently and patiently over time came after me until he, until he broke me open to his love. 
And the only reason I believe is due to the mystery of grace. Not because I'm better than anybody else. Now, if you realize this truth, how do you then look at other people on the overhead? If you really believe in the universality of sin and in the radical nature of grace, it rehumanizes people you would otherwise demonize. Uh, It rehumanizes the people you otherwise would look down at. Now imagine, for example, Rusty and I are about to rob a bank. We've made up our minds to rob this bank to pay for our voice lessons. (laughs) We couldn't find a large enough bank to pay for mine. (laughs) So we decided on a small bank to pay for his. On our way to the bank, we stopped by Kalev's house uh, to get some pointers from a former cop. (laughs) And Kalev says... No, stop. Are you crazy? Don't do this. Don't rob the bank. Kalev says, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry for complaining all the time about Rusty singing. <laughs> Don't rob that bank. Sorry, Kalev. We've made up our minds. And just as we're leaving, Kalev looks at me, because I'm the smaller one, and, and he tackles me. But Rusty's too big even for Caleb to tackle, and, and Rusty gets away. So Rusty robs the bank. But because he's an anti-masker, he's easily identified, and they ID him, and they arrest him. <laughs> and now Rusty's in jail. But Kalev held me down really well, so I never get to the bank. I don't go to jail. Now, when I go to visit Rusty in jail, what do I say? What's my attitude? Do I say, you idiot, what's the matter with you? No. I say, I should be in jail with you. I don't know why I'm not in jail. The only reason I'm not in jail is because of the mystery of grace and Caleb's strength. Now, can I feel superior in any way to Rusty? No, because but for the grace of God, I'd be in jail with him. If we really believed in both the universality of sin and in the radical nature of grace, we would not disdain any group any class, any race, uh, any ethnicity, the gospel should change our worldview. Because the doctrines of the universality of sin and the radical nature of grace are profoundly rehumanizing. These truths, if you truly embrace them in your heart, will rehumanize all kinds of people you otherwise would disdain. So you say, tell me something I don't know about the universality of sin. I just did. So number one on the overhead, first thing we learn here is is the breath of sin. But number two, the second thing we learn is you really don't know who you are unless you also look at the depth of sin. You don't know who you are unless you're willing to look underneath the surface at the depth of your own heart, your inner motives. Now, When you become a believer, a lot of things change, right? A lot of things happen. You stop doing X, Y, Z. You start doing ABC. You stop going to bars and clubs. And you start going to shul and and, and Bible studies. And on the surface, you're making a lot of good, important changes. And you feel pretty good about it. And you should. But a Nietzschean question is this. Why? Why are you now obeying the Ten Commandments? Why are you praying? Why are you going to shul? Why are you studying and trying to live by the Bible? Why? What's your motivation? And Yeshua helps us to think about this 
And this very ambiguous statement he says here in verse 18 about the identity of the one who'd betray him. So we need to ask ourselves, why was Yeshua so ambiguous? Why didn't he, he, why didn't he just say, it's Judas who's going to betray me? You know, in the, in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, uh, the White Witch of Narnia simply says, you have a traitor in your midst, and there he is. <laughs> but Yeshua doesn't do that. Instead, he says this in Mark 14, verse 18. He says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, the one who's eating with me. He doesn't directly say who it is, just that one of you will betray me. Now, why is Yeshua so deliberately ambiguous? Two reasons. Look at the first one now and the second one at the end. The first reason is because Yeshua wants every one of his disciples to look into their own hearts. And when he says, one of you will betray me, he uses a Greek word that means to, to hand over or to sell. Uh, and the sin of betrayal at bottom is a sin of motivation. And the overhead. The sin of betrayal is to say, I'll serve you as long as it benefits me. But I'll sell you out the minute it costs me. So here's a person who on the outside is doing everything Yeshua says. And here's another person who's also doing everything Yeshua says. But the first person is doing everything Yeshua says in order to profit. And the second person is obeying Yeshua simply to please him. But on the surface, they look exactly the same. But their motives are utterly different. And the only way you can find out the difference is when things go bad. Uh, and things are about to go very, very bad for Yeshua. Up until now, the disciples are thinking, wow, Yeshua, he's coming into his kingdom. And that means we're going to be at the top. We're going to be in his cabinet, you know. Or we're going to be uh, his secretary of state and his secretary of defense and his secretary of homeland security. He's ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. The crowd hailed him as a son of David. The title of it was of a messianic king. Wow! But the religious leaders know that he therefore must be destroyed. And the disciples are now beginning to recognize that too. And so now the fat hits the fire. And Yeshua says, one of you will betray me. And look at what they all do. The disciples, they don't exactly deny it or confess it. Rather, look at Mark 14, 19. We read this. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? They each said, surely not I. Surely you don't mean me. And the commentators have noted that both linguistically and emotionally, this is, a remark- this is a remarkably ambiguous response. It's an ambivalent response. They're all saying, not me. Me? Uh, you can't mean me, can you? What they're saying, and on the overhead, and what Yeshua wants them to see, what he wants you and me to see, is that you may not be a Judas through and through, but we all have got a Judas within us to some extent. Why? What does that mean? Look at Job. Job's having a great life. He's very faithful to God. There's noises here. Uh, And God and Satan, they're having this debate about Job. (laughs) And God says to Satan in Job 1 verse 8, Have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth. Blameless, upright. A man who fears God and, and shuns evil. 
Satan scoffs. And he says in Job 1, verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. Surely he'll curse you to your face. Now there's a question. Does Job serve God for nothing? Satan says, God, you know, Job looks like he's serving you on the outside. But I submit he's really just using you. He looks like he's serving you, but actually he's using you as a means to an end. He's serving you to serve himself. He's serving you to get things. Not to please you, but just to get things. And I'll prove it to you. Let everything go bad in his life. Uh, He'll sell you out like a broker sells non-performing stocks. (laughs) He'll sell you off and you'll be gone. (laughs) That's the theme of the book of Job. Does Job serve God for nothing? Is Job using God or serving God on the overhead? Every time you you go through a Job-like experience, every time you go through a time in your life when things go bad, God is saying this, now we'll see. Now we'll see if you got into this relationship to get me to serve you or for you to serve me on the overhead. And there's almost no way to know what's really down under the surface in your heart, in the depths of your soul, until things go bad. Until bad things happen. When bad things happen, you know, uh, there's, there's a part of your heart that says, hey, where's all this blessedness? Where's the health and the wealth and the prosperity that I signed up for? I'm saying no to sin. I'm abstaining from immorality and from greed. Uh, I'm sacrificing. I'm doing all the right things. Uh, and yet, everything's going wrong. And there's a part of your heart that says, what good then is this Yeshua faith? That's the Judas part of your heart. It's the part of your heart that's operating on the principle of religion rather than the gospel. On the overhead. Religion operates on the principle, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. And now God owes me. The gospel, though, operates on the principle, I'm accepted on the basis of the infinite sacrifice of Yeshua and sheer grace. And therefore I obey and I owe him everything. And these are two absolutely opposing paradigms. The Judas principle in us The part of our heart that still operates on the idea that if I do this and this and this, then God has to bless me. This means I'm using God for the blessings. I'm not serving God. I'm serving myself. I'm using God to get this and this. And and, and the the real point isn't God. The real point is the blessings. And that's the part of your heart that Yeshua here is saying is in you deep down, even if you're not a a pure Judas through and through. There's a Judas in you. That's the depth of sin. But what else is in you? A Miriam. Mark brings up this account of Judas' betrayal immediately after the story of this woman anointing Yeshua with an alabaster alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. Mark himself in this gospel doesn't name the woman, but the gospel of John tells us that uh, the Gospel of John told us it's Mary, the, the sister of, of Lazarus. Uh, uh, or in Hebrew, it's Miriam, the sister of Eliezer. 
In the beginning of Mark 14, we're told that when Yeshua came to Bethany, Miriam took this expensive perfume and poured it over his head. But the people at the dinner in Bethany, they were shocked and they were offended. And we read this in Mark 14, verse 4. Some of the people present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. And not only did did Miriam anoint his head, but in a parallel passage in in John uh, 12, verse 3, we're told this. She also poured it on Yeshua's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And not only was this extravagance financially over the top, it was also emotionally over the top for a woman to to let down her hair and to use it to wipe his feet with perfume. Jonathan Edwards, in the 1700s, preached a sermon called Mary's Remarkable Act, in which he says this on the overhead. He says, the thing that shocked everyone about Mary's act of devotion was its uselessness. Its uselessness. First of all, it was useless to Yeshua, because it's useful to have your feet anointed with a modest-priced perfume, but not worth a year's wages. He didn't need that. But it was also useless to Mary. Because she had already received her brother Lazarus back from the dead by Yeshua's power. Mary had already seen Yeshua's utter commitment to her and her family on the overhead. And now we begin to understand the difference between Judas and Mary. Judas found Yeshua useful. But Mary found Yeshua beautiful. Judas served Yeshua to get things. Miriam served Yeshua just to get Yeshua. And that's what I want to put in front of you today on the overhead. In every one of you, in every one, all of, one of us, there's both a Judas and a Miriam on the overhead. Uh, there's a part of us operating off this religious paradigm that says, if I live a good life, then God has to bless me. In other words, I'm using God to get the blessings on the overhead. And there's another part of you uh, if you're, uh, that's uh, uh, operating off the gospel paradigm that understands what he's done and you respond to Yeshua as an object of beauty. Not of utility, but of beauty. Do you understand the difference between something being useful and something being beautiful? Here's an example. I had to take a music appreciation class in college to get my liberal arts degree, so I listened to a lot of Mozart. And I needed that degree to go to law school and to make money. So you could say, I listened to Mozart in order to make money. But now I, I'll spend a lot of money to go to a concert to hear Mozart. Why? Is it useful? No. Uh, so why do I do it? It fills my soul. It's beautiful in and of itself. It's fulfilling in and of itself. And that's what happens here with Miriam, anointing Yeshua's head and feet with this expensive perfume, why is she doing this extravagant thing? She's not doing a cost-benefit analysis. She's not saying, well, if I pour $1,000 worth of perfume on him, I'll get this much. If I pour $10,000, well, I'll get that much. No. Her generosity is absolutely spontaneous. It's not conforming to some rigid, uh, pre-established norm. It's not for a quid pro quo. She simply wants to bless Yeshua and show her love. She desires to do so. She loves to do so. 
Uh, and the more that she expresses her joy and generosity uh, and service, the more of it she has. In every single one of us, there's a Judas and a Miriam. Here's what Judas does. Judas says, if I do this and this, I ought to get this, this and this. But if I'm not getting it, well, then I'm not going to do it in the first place. I'm only doing it for the benefits on the overhead. For Judas, God is useful. God, God is an instrument. Uh, he's a means to an end. But Miriam serves God just for the shining, satisfying magnificence of who he is. In and of himself. On the overhead. A religious person says, uh, God is a means to an end. And therefore, your obedience is always a burden. Your emotions are up and down because, things that you, um, because the things you're really after isn't God himself. But, but it's a good life uh, and getting a job, getting A's in school, getting people's approval. And because your circumstances are up and down, you're always up and down. But a gospel person on the overhead, uh, a Miriam, is someone for whom Yeshua is an end in and of himself. And as a result, obedience is a joy. And service is spontaneous. And your emotions aren't up and down. Because the ultimate beauty in your life is Yeshua himself. And he doesn't change. In every one of us, there is a Miriam and a Judas. And to grow in grace. And to become more emotionally stable. And become a more generous person. You must become more and more of a Miriam, which is to see Yeshua not as an object of utility, but as an absolute beauty. Okay, point three on the overhead. How do you get this? How do I overcome uh, the breadth of sin and the depths of sin within me? How do I find Yeshua beauty instead of just something I've got to do? You know, at the beginning of the dress, I said there were two reasons why Yeshua gave this ambiguous response in verse 18. When he cryptically said this in Mark 14, 18, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, the one who's eating with me. Which is very vague, because they were all eating with him. Which is why they each said, you know, is it I? Is it I? And we spoke at length about the first reason. Yeshua is pointing out the breadth and especially the depth of sin. So now let's look at the second reason for Yeshua's ambiguous response. Yeshua says, one of you is going to betray me. Why was he so ambiguous? You know, remember King David, when he betrayed Uriah by sleeping with his wife Bathsheba? And then to cover it up, he had Uriah killed. Uh, when Nathan the prophet walks into the royal court, he doesn't say, one of you here has sinned. I'm not telling you who, but, but uh, someone here has sinned. <laughs> no. What does Nathan say? He looks at King David and he says, thou art the man. No beating around the bush. But Yeshua, he's not that direct. Why does Yeshua simply say, one of you will betray me? Now, on the one hand, he doesn't say nothing at all. He's not silent. He very clearly is saying to Judas this. He's saying to Judas, I see you. And he says in Mark 14, 20, it's the one who dips in the bowl with me. Into the bowl. Now, some translations say, the one who dipped bread in the bowl with me. But the word bread is not even actually even there. In the Greek, the, the proper translation simply says, the one who dips in the bowl with me. This is the part of the Seder involving the karpas, the dipping of the parsley or the green leafy vegetable uh, twice uh, into the red wine vinegar. Now, I know today we use salt water, but in the Seders in the first century, they used red wine vinegar. 
Uh, this represents the betrayal of Joseph, whose brothers dipped his co- coat in goat's blood. The event that actually initi- initiated the descent down into Egypt. But why did we dip it twice? Because it also represents the hyssop dipped in the lamb's blood to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of the house in Egypt. As Yeshua and his disciples, they dip the carpus into the dish of vinegar. He says this in Mark 14, 20. The one, one of you will betray me, the one who dips into the bowl with me. The bitter herbs of the Seder also represent not only the bitterness of slavery, but also the bitterness of Yeshua's betrayal by one of his own. Indeed, in the Midrash Ruth for Ba, 5, 6 on the overhead, the rabbis say this. Come near and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Dip your bread in the vinegar refers to Messiah's suffering. As it's said in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. This is amazing. Know how the rabbis here are linking the dipping in the vinegar to Messiah's suffering. And they're even quoting Isaiah 53, agreeing and admitting and confessing this is a messianic text. This was the part of the Seder where the unleavened bread was also dipped in the vinegar. Yeshua gave some of, the, of, the bread, of this bread to Judas, just fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, the one who, sh- the one, uh, I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The disciples had not seen who dipped the, vin- the vinegar with Yeshua, that Judas realized Yeshua knows that it's him. Yeshua is clearly saying to Judas, I see you. We'll get back to this in a minute. Let me first finish up our, our text. At the very end of the Seder, we read this in Mark 14, 26. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This would have been the Hallel Psalms, these hymns, Psalms 113 to 118. After dinner, the very final Hallel Psalm would have been sung, which is Psalm 118, which is a very, very messianic psalm. Just a few quick verses from Psalm 118, verse verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness. Uh, I'll enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. Yeshua is our righteousness. He's the gate we must enter through. Uh, Verse 21. I'll give thanks uh, for you answered me. You've become my salvation. Literally, you've become my Yeshua. His name means salvation. Verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's it's marvelous uh, in our eyes. Uh, The builders are the religious leaders. They've rejected Yeshua. But he becomes the chief cornerstone in God's temple. Verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. O Lord, grant us success. Baruch HaBashamaranai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is, by the way, what they proclaimed as Yeshua entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This was the welcome for King Messiah to say this phrase. And then verse 26, we blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He's given us light. Yeshua says, I'm the light of the world. And then out of nowhere, at the end of the psalm, we read this in verse 27. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The festival sacrifice. What festival are we in when this psalm is read? Passover. Yeshua is pictured here as the Pesach lamb, being bound to the altar for sacrifice. So in this psalm, God has given us light. He's bringing us salvation. 
He's delivering us. He's saving us. It all, and it all centers around this festival sacrifice. Yeshua is our Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now imagine if you can, Yeshua singing these words about himself as he concludes his Passover Seder. And then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And then we finally read this at the end of, the, at the end of our passage. Mark 14, verse 27. You will all fall away, Yeshua told them. For it's written, and I was quoting Zechariah 13, 7. I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into the Galil, into Galilee. So, Zechariah 13, 7. Let's read the whole verse. Get the context. Awake sword. This is God speaking. Awake sword against my shepherd. Against the man who's close to me, my associate, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The shepherd here was the good shepherd, Messiah. This verse also, interestingly, alludes to his deity. His humanity, by the way, is very clear here. It says, against the man, you know, my shepherd, against the man. So his, his humanity is there. But the Hebrew in the next phrase is translated in a lot of different ways. Against the man who's my fellow, my companion, my colleague, my associate. Uh, but the Hebrew, uh, amiti, also means my equal. So this verse can be read against the man who is my equal. Now God is the speaker, and he's calling this shepherd, the Messiah, his equal. Now to be equal to God, you've got to be God. So we see the deity of Messiah hinted at here. And the Hebrew to strike the shepherd indicates a violent death. Uh, and when he dies, his sheep, his disciples are scattered. That's what we read in the Gospels. Now note, uh, in this prophecy, the Lord speaks of his own sword. The Lord God is speaking of his own sword, ordering it to smite someone else that the Lord calls my shepherd, uh, the man next to me. Uh, and the Tanakh repeats over and over again, the Lord's shepherd is, is the king of Israel. And the ultimate king of Israel is the Messiah king himself, the messianic king, King Messiah. The man next to me refers to Messiah sitting at the right hand of God. And Rabbi Lichtenstein on the overhead, he writes this. The man next to me is a reference to Messiah, for he's the man next to the Holy One, blessed be he. Indeed, he is the second face, i.e. the word of Hashem. So we don't hear Messiah smiting comes from the hand of God himself. It's God's divine intention for Messiah to be killed, to die for our sins. The sheep are scattered. Uh, these are his disciples. As you read in Matthew 9, verse 36, they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And this passage then ends, though, with this great prediction of the resurrection. Look at verse 28, Mark 14, 28. But after I rise, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. So after the Seder, Yeshua then proceeds to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knows Judas is going to betray him. But at the Last Supper, he gives Judas one last chance to repent. When Yeshua says, one of you will betray me, it's his way of saying to Judas, I see you. And it's a warning here. Now, why is Yeshua doing it this way? He wants Judas, even Judas, to repent. He doesn't want to shatter him. He wants to melt him. He doesn't want to condemn him. He wants to convict him. Yeshua, in Yeshua, we have this perfect blend of majesty and meekness, kindness and assertiveness, grace and justice. We see Yeshua's same perfect blend 
in the account of the woman caught in adultery. At the very end of the the passage there, he gives this amazing statement in John 8, verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, let's analyze this just a moment. It makes sense to say, this isn't sin, and therefore I don't condemn you. It also makes sense to say, well, this is sin, and I do condemn you. But does it make any sense to say, it's sin, but I don't condemn you? He doesn't say it's not sin. Who's to say what sin is? Each person has to decide you know, what's right or wrong for themselves. You decide. No, he doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, sinner, fallen woman, scarlet letter. <laughs> no, what does he say? He says, this is sin, this is wrong, you're breaking God's law. I see you, but I don't condemn you. Now, how can he do that? How can he bring these seeming, seemingly two opposing things together? Because that is the gospel. If you repent and trust in Yeshua, even though you still sin, Romans 8 and verse 1 says this, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. When Yeshua looks at this woman, he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. He's saying, this is sin, this is serious, but I do not condemn you. Um, Why? Because I'm taking your condemnation. To see Yeshua taking your condemnation so that he can be both just and the justifier of you and me at the same time, though we're sinners. Seeing this makes him beautiful. On the cross, we see the ultimate example of majesty and meekness in one. Yeshua was so holy, he had to die for sin. There was no other way. But he's so loving, he was glad to die. That makes him beautiful, ultimately beautiful. When I see him, but both loving uh, and so, so loving and so just that he's willing to take on uh, our condemnation, so now he can reach out even to Judas and to all of us Judases all over the world, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he is offering you mercy and grace. When I see this beauty, I am moved and changed. And if you see this same beauty, let it sink in. And it'll change you, too. The beauty of Yeshua, who he is, what he's done for you, will fill your soul. And then, like the old hymn, we can say this on the overhead. With the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for today for showing us this, in this account, Lord, of, of Judas's betrayal. Uh, what, what the, that uh, both the breadth of sin, you show us, Lord, it's universal, that we're not exempt. And, Lord, today you've shown us the, the depth of sin, that we don't know our own hearts. Lord, we confess today the dividing line between good and evil runs down the center of every human heart including mine. And therefore, Lord, help me to see others, even those who wrong me, help me to see them in the same category as me. And therefore, help me to forgive them. I confess, Lord, that forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the category of humans. And I exclude myself from the category of sinners. 
Help me to overcome this by seeing both the universality of sin and the radical nature of your amazing grace. Help me see the depth of my own sin, Lord. Uh, how my inner motivations are often self-serving uh, uh, and obey me because I think it's useful. I think, I think it'll lead uh, to you blessing me instead of just obeying you out of sheer love for who you are, Yeshua, in and of yourself, out of gratitude of what you've done for me. Help me, Lord, to be a Miriam, not a Judas. Help me, like Job, to serve you, Yeshua, for nothing. Help me to serve you uh, whether things are going good or bad in my life. Help me to live by the gospel, not by religion. To serve you out of love and devotion. Help me, Lord, not to see you as useful, but to see you as beautiful. Help me to serve you not to get things, but just to get you, Yeshua. You are the pearl of great price. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.